Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Nima Kulkarni, a trailblazing state representative from Kentucky. An immigration attorney, Nima shared her timely thoughts on the Biden administration's immigration reform proposals, as well as her work around police reform in Louisville in the wake of the Breonna Taylor shooting. Nima shared her family's immigration story and how that put her on a path to study the law, get heavily involved in her community, and eventually run for the state house, becoming the first Indian American elected in the state of Kentucky. Nima Kulkarni, welcome to an honorable profession. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you. It's such a, you know, historic moment here in our in our country. We're we're talking just a couple weeks into the Biden Harris administration, and you, of course, are a Democratic state representative in Kentucky, a very famously red state. So I thought I'd start by asking, you know, just how you're generally feeling about where we are as a country, and in particular, are you optimistic that we can come together to tackle some of the big challenges that we're facing right now? Yeah, I, I think optimistic is a very good word to use, certainly about how Democrats are feeling, even Democrats in Kentucky. I'm in Louisville, so it's a pretty Democratic uh, city, which is which is rare. But I know that I know that there is a lot of hope. And especially as an immigration attorney, there's a lot of hope among immigration advocates, uh, given that Biden has made that his priority and had a lot of executive orders that he signed on day one. And in the first week, sort of reversing these horrible policies that we saw under the prior administration. So that plus, you know, this new budget that was passed or the Relief Act that was passed by the House with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker. I think all of that is is something that is very encouraging to us um, and really fills us with hope that there's uh, some movement that can be made in a more progressive direction. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I definitely want to come back and spend some time talking about immigration and your work there. But let me ask you one other political question while we're on the subject of Kentucky. I just I think a lot of people wasn't too long ago. uh, Last November, we're really hopeful that Amy McGrath might be able to unseat Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, obviously raised a ton of money. And at least from the outside, it kind of looked, you know, like it might be competitive. I I know you do have a Democratic governor, so you can win statewide in Kentucky as a Democrat. I'm just curious about your take on what's kind of the winning formula for winning uh, statewide in your in your state. Yeah. And, you know, you can ask uh, so many people. I'm sure this has been analyzed to death. Why Mitch McConnell keeps getting (laughs) reelected? I don't think you'd find a good answer. You know, one of the things that was very interesting to me in this last cycle was the primary race um, Mm. where it was Charles Booker and Amy McGrath. And you had this huge disparity in terms of the money that was raised in this war chest versus, you know, somebody that basically closed a 50 point gap to less than three points on the day of the election. 
with much less money and who started late. And, and it, there was a lot of, there was a lot of momentum in that primary election. There was a lot of different sentiment throughout Kentucky. And I think one of the things that happened is Amy McGrath ultimately was trying to cater to Republicans and Republicans in Kentucky are not going to vote for a Democrat, especially when you go out into the state and what you have to do, not with the same message, I'll, I'll put it that way, not with the same old message. One of the things that we saw in the primary was Charles Booker going out to rural Kentucky and talking to people about his experience with poverty, for instance. He talked about the civil unrest and all the protests happening in the wake of Breonna Taylor's shooting. I think when you have a candidate that's able to speak to a person on a personal level about something that that person has experience with or identifies with, that is the candidate that's going to win. And I think had the primary season been a little bit longer, had there been, you know, not a pandemic um, raging, I, I think that we would have seen a different candidate. And I think that candidate might have had a better shot. I think there is a, a general feeling among Democrats in Kentucky that we have to get the conservative vote, that we have to get Republicans on our side. And I, either way, I don't think you get people on your side unless you're able to speak to them on a human level. And I guess that Mitch McConnell's able to do that. <laughs> I, have not, I have not personally met him, but I think if you have the right candidate, that's the thing. You have to have the right candidate to unseat somebody who's been in office for that long and is so entrenched um, in Kentucky politics. Yeah, super interesting. I think people were really surprised by that primary result, actually. I'm, I'm, thanks for reminding us about that. It was people it wasn't on a lot of people's radar screens, I think. So super interesting. I, I, let's go back to the to the new administration. And, and you mentioned out of the gate uh, about immigration. Obviously, you are an immigration attorney. and We'll talk about that as well. But what is your take on the Biden proposal specifically? What is uh, you know exciting to you about that? And I'd love to hear a little bit as well about some of the ideas you're championing around immigration at the state level too. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that was exciting just to begin with is that is that he made it a priority. You know, I think he signaled that this was a priority issue for his administration. Kamala Harris, obviously, is the first first generation descendant of, of Black and Asian immigrants to be vice president, in addition to being the first female vice president. And I think that all of that speaks to this being an issue that they're not necessarily going to shy away from and that they're going to try to meet head on because it's, you know, fundamentally an, an economic issue. It's a population issue. It's a workforce issue. And I think we have to be able to craft rational policies on a federal level. And, you know, you mentioned state level and we'll get to that. But it's, it's really important that as a country, we recognize the value and really the fundamental foundation that immigration has laid for building this country. I think that that is something that a lot of immigration advocates, you know, we, we had a horrible time <laughs> after Trump because this was his signature issue as well, just in the opposite direction, like, you know, trying to just shut down immigration, trying to demonize and vilify immigrants. And, and it's one of the things that we saw amplified is this rhetoric that's been around basically since the 1790s that immigrants are criminals, immigrants bring diseases, and immigrants are here to steal your jobs. That's That narrative hasn't changed since almost the founding of this country. And, and so, 
you know, it's, it's interesting to note too, that, you know, in different administrations and democratic administrations and in Republican administrations, you don't really ever see Congress or you haven't in decades seen Congress take up comprehensive immigration reform. Just that, that whole concept has not been touched. And a lot of it, I think is, you know, you can chalk it up to political will because immigration is a very hot button topic. You say the word, people have a lot of emotions about it, a lot of gut reactions to it. And it turns out your base and it turns out your base, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. So, you know, and it's unfortunate, but I think that's why we have not seen sort of these very simple solutions that have been analyzed by experts that have, you know, we've looked at how much the cost is, what is the benefit to the country, and nothing is being done because politically it's expedient to have immigration continue to be a, an issue, you know, as opposed to solved. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just be another pillar in our economy. And I'm hopeful that Biden's proposal focuses on that, right? So part of his proposal includes updating our employment-based immigration system, which is what I practice in. So I specialize in that area and that that is specifically dealing with employers trying to get folks to come work for them or, or it deals with folks trying to start businesses. And so I think, I think once we are able to frame it a little bit differently and address any roadblocks that exist in our immigration system, that's a step forward. So one of the things he's proposing is getting rid of backlogs, for instance, in the employment-based immigration process. Those caps, you know, there's, there's backlogs due to these arbitrary caps that were placed back in 1990. So it's pre-Google and it has, has not reflected, you know, the tech boom at all. It has not reflected the major shifts that have happened in various industry sectors in terms of workforce, workforce needs, and, and I think that that, you know, just updating that system would have a huge impact on our economy. And once you start seeing the beneficial impact, it's much, much more difficult to get caught up in the rhetoric. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we start talking about immigration in the right way, and therefore the policies will kind of follow. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think it's so important that uh, the focus be, as you said, on the, the benefits of immigration. I mean, obviously, the... The, the values that our country was based on, but also the economic impact it continues to have for sure. And, you know, when people think about immigration, Nima, they often think about it at the federal level to, you know, the system is a, is a federal system. But we know there's a lot of stuff that can be done at the state and local level as well. We just talk a little bit about some of the ideas that you've been thinking about as a state legislator. Yeah. So I've been discussing with our, for instance, our universities, because I deal with a lot of researchers, students, um, the folks that have come here to like get PhDs, they're patent holders, and we don't have a really solid way for them to stay here, to build their businesses, or to continue working for their employers. And so one of the things I've been working with our university system in Louisville, so my district encompasses the University of Louisville, which is one of two top tier research institutions in Kentucky, University of Kentucky being the other. And, you know, it's something that that universities have not necessarily done. Some have, some have not. University of Louisville has not. Really kind of trying to harness the global talent that they attract because of their research institution status. And the, the students they're able to attract from kind of all different walks of life, all different countries, studying different things, 
most of them STEM. So the majority of, of STEM students in our country are immigrants, and the majority of them are from India and China specifically. And, you know, they come here, they develop a technology, they get a patent, and then our work visa situation is such that it's, you know, a, a random computer-generated lottery, and you may not get it, so they have to leave. So they take their patent and their technology, and they start their, you know, company somewhere else most likely Canada, you know, or their home country. And it's something that we are just continuously losing out on, on a daily basis, because we're not being deliberate about it. And, and we're not doing it federally, but we can do it on a local level. And so that's something I'm, I'm really been kind of earnestly discussing this with our university to try to get something in place that helps these folks stay here. And that's kind of in the high-skilled area, right? So these are highly educated people, high-skilled workforce, mostly STEM. And I think you can look at the opposite as well in terms of unskilled labor. So you're not talking about professional positions. We have a lot of farmland. We have a lot of agriculture in Kentucky as well. And I've heard from employers because they have a lot of undocumented folks working for them who cannot get driver's licenses. And so you have a situation where there's an employer who cannot function without the, you know, his workforce or this one, uh, you know, very reliable person that has been there in their business. And they don't want them to go to the grocery store because they might get picked up by ICE because they don't have a driver's license. And that is the majority of the pipeline that leads to immigration detention and deportation is you get stopped for some reason. It may be a broken taillight. It could be something as innocuous as that. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have, you know, auto insurance. And then you're, you know, sort of detained. They find out you don't have papers. ICE comes, gets you, and you're put in immigration detention and then deported. Like, that's the pipeline. They are not rounded up necessarily all the time because of crimes. There, It's usually something, you know, related to a driver's license offense. And, and you think about how how many people and how many families are caught up in that. And how many employers are then impacted when their workers don't show up? And, you know, having a driver's license be issued, regardless of your immigration status, is something that is a pretty simple fix. And it would lead to increased revenue in terms of fees. It would lead to safer roads because you would require auto insurance and driver's tests. And it's the, the rational argument for against it does not exist, right? It's just basically why would we reward them? With driving privileges. And, and I think, again, if you're able to frame the conversation in a rational way, you don't have these arguments that are sort of gut reactions to uh, how immigrants were portrayed, you know, uh, in the past. Yeah, thank you for those. I, I know that you've really become a national leader on these immigration issues. And we're grateful at the New Deal to have you as an expert and uh, sharing some of those ideas across the country. I'd love to turn to uh, to another issue that has been in the news this week. The mayor of Louisville, who's actually also a New Deal leader, Greg Fisher, he released the results of an independent top-to-bottom review of the Metro Police Department in response to the shooting of Breonna Taylor. And I know that's an, also an issue you've been really deeply involved with, both sponsoring police reform bill in the legislature, as well as being part of the mayor's civilian review board. So I'm curious about how you got involved in that issue and how you're feeling about the report and a, and a path forward in Louisville to heal the community. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was so interesting when the report came out because it was basically affirming what we all knew, that there was a disparate level of treatment by the police based on race 
in certain communities. And so, you know, the folks that are down at Injustice Square, which is what they renamed Jefferson Square Park, because that's where the protests were, and they're still there in the wake of Breonna Taylor's death every single day. I think, you know, those folks would tell you, we already knew this. We already knew what was in the report. And we've been calling on you to change your policies because we already knew this. We've lived with this for most of our lives. I think that it's empirical evidence, it's objective evidence that maybe some other folks in the community need to see that do not understand what systemic racism is, that do not understand how deeply rooted this racial disparity is in terms of treatment by law enforcement, which can result and does result all too often in death for no reason. And so I think that what we can see here is that there is no path forward except to reform our police force, reform their training, reform how they police their communities, and really, really try to build trust with the community and the police officers serving them back, um, because that trust is gone. And I think that, you know, if we're ever to get back to any semblance of confidence in our police force, we have got to rebuild that trust. And the only way we can do that is by giving the community some assurance, some real signs of progress in terms of police reform. That includes creating the Civilian Review Board. That includes making sure police training measures and the curriculum is completely overhauled. It also, you know, is important to make sure that we root out any signs of white supremacy in our police force and and not let that continue, not let it fester and not let it grow in the dark until it's too late. So I am hopeful that while certain folks in our community already knew this, I think that this report will help other people understand that this is not something that's just something some activists are saying and dismissing it. Um, this is a real empirical report that we all need to pay attention to if we're going to survive. I mean, and I say that quite literally because people are dying and, and we and people don't trust the police. And, and there's just no way to get past that until you address all the issues that have been identified in the report. Yeah, it's a conversation happening across the country, isn't it? And it's it such, sure a, is. <laughs> such an important conversation to rebuild that trust. Neem, I know another topic that is important to you, you were a leader of a just announced package of bills and reforms called the Kentucky Maternal and Infant Health Project. Uh, I'm excited to hear more about that and, and what you're trying to achieve with that, with that, uh, that package. Yeah. So as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Kentucky is a very red state, which means it's very pro-Second Amendment and it's very pro-life. And, you know, one of the things that in my opinion and, and in the opinion of, of my colleagues that joined onto this project is we don't talk about the right right to reproductive health care, access to reproductive health care, the need for reproductive health care for women as, as a fundamental right, as a necessity. And it's always framed as, as an abortion issue. So it's just always about abortion. Everything that we've seen in the legislature even during a pandemic, you've seen bills targeting providers, you've seen bills targeting nurses, families, anybody that, that sort of is involved 
the, on any angle. So it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts in terms of how do you get around Roe v. Wade, which is still the law of the land. And I, I think that this all kind of started with a conversation that was very discouraging because we were all like, oh, here's some more bills that we have to vote for <laughs> that are not, you know, not helping our constituents that are basically just providing sound what sound bites for, you know, pro-life legislators. And we don't have a response, right? We don't really have a response like that, at least in Kentucky. And I think that, you know, other states, other legislatures, maybe that conversation is a little bit more robust. And, you know, at some point during that conversation, we decided that we just have to reframe the narrative. I mean, in Kentucky, we are at a 75 to 25 disadvantage. So we, we are in a super minority. I don't know what the word is for super, super minority, but we are just, <laughs> we are, we are extraordinary minority. <laughs> yes. It, it's a, there's very few of us. And so it's a good opportunity to reframe it because, you know, there's, we, there's just no way that we're going to be able to get the votes to, you know, not pass something to oppose something actively. And I think that's where this project came from. And my colleague, um, Representative Lisa Wilner, has very close ties with a lot of uh, reproductive advocacy groups. And, and that's how it came about. We were like, here's what their, the maternal and infant health needs are in Kentucky. Here are some broad areas that we need to focus on, like access to care, like, you know, incarcerated women. And that's something that I spoke about at the press conference that we had because it includes immigrant women as well. Um, and it disparately impacts black and brown women. And it's, it's just shocking. I mean, in Kentucky, a woman can be shackled while giving birth to a child. Oh. That child will be separated from her very soon after giving birth, regardless of if she's in there for a violent offense or not. And, and that's where we are. That's the state of you know maternal and infant health for incarcerated women. And that's just one area, you know? mental health care, postpartum treatment, you know, the coverage, insurance coverage for, for any, any, you know, supplies, any medical supplies, any medical care. There's just a whole slew of, of policies that we are not enacting that actually do impact mothers and infants. And so the, the sort of focus, the laser focus on this one issue of abortion has has really dominated the narrative in Kentucky. And so this is an attempt for us to reframe that narrative in a more positive and a more beneficial and impactful light for the women of Kentucky. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struck listening to you across these issue areas, actually, about whether it's immigration, we're talking about reframing that narrative and focusing on the economic impacts or whether on the police reform or uh, even just healing the countries we started talking about with the new administration generally that your focus so much on on recasting a narrative and, and telling the story differently in a way to bring people together. I think that that's probably pretty instructive, as you said, you know, being in a blue city in a red state of, of, um, of how to think about bringing people together. Uh, it's, a, it's a unique perspective. I'm really, I'm really struck by. So thanks for sharing, sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to switch gears for a minute and talk a little bit about your own experience into public service. After all, this is a podcast called An Honorable Profession to, to talk about the, the value and importance of public service. So we talked a lot about immigration policy. And I uh, obviously, you, you are also an immigrant yourself, not just an immigration attorney. 
I believe you arrived here with your family from India when you were about six. And I'd read that your father had been a high-level executive in the steel industry in India, and I think had some trouble initially getting work, buying a small grocery store, and eventually building a really successful business and working in the mayor's office. So I'm just curious about your own experiences immigrating to America as a child and how you think that's shaped your outlook as a public official. Yeah, it's so funny to hear sort of your your parent story in such <laughs> such broad strokes. But yeah, I mean, we came to Louisville. So this this is the first part. We came from India to Louisville, Kentucky, right? We didn't go to New York. We didn't go to California. We went to Louisville, Kentucky. And we came here because my brother had learning disabilities. And there's a school called the DePaul School in Louisville. And my dad had somehow heard of them and had gotten in touch with the nun that had founded the school, Sister Ann Rita. And and somehow they, you know, but we didn't have, you know, we got here. We got here. They enrolled him in school. And and we all moved here so that basically my brother and I could have every educational opportunity that we could. And like you said, my dad was an executive and we didn't, you know, we were leaving a pretty comfortable life behind in India just to just to sort of get this opportunity off the ground for my brother. And, you know, that's that's a pretty remarkable thing. And you'll hear this, echoes of this, in pretty much every immigrant story where you have this leap of faith. It's a leap of faith, but it's done with a lot of belief in yourself and your ability to accomplish, you know, the thing that you're setting out to accomplish. You'll find that a lot of immigrants carry that with them and they start their own businesses, even if they have jobs, they're entrepreneurs at heart, you know, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, my dad came here. He was, again, he had spoke the language, had a lot of degrees, could not get a job. Like there was just no job uh, available for whatever reason. I mean, Louisville back then was not necessarily um, as, I guess, as cosmopolitan. I say that relatively there weren't a whole lot of immigrants, you know, in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. I think there were maybe a handful of Indian families who had come over previously as physicians. So there's these these odd waves of immigration that I always talk about too when I talk about immigration, the history of immigration to our country. So in Indian, in the Indian context, you had, you know, a wave of engineers come over like the 60s and 70s. You had physicians come over after that. And then you had all of these software developers <laughs> come over after the tech boom in the 90s. And so we came in in the middle of that, after the physicians, before the tech boom. And so it, it was a, an odd time, I'm sure, for, for Louisville. But yeah, couldn't find a job. And so they used their savings. They borrowed money. And they bought a corner grocery store. It was called 8 to 8. And it was in the heart of Germantown, the Germantown area of Louisville, which, again, back then actually had... Uh, descendants of the German immigrants that lived there. They still had some older German folks, and it was it was a very predominantly white area, predominantly older folks living there. And we just sort of showed up this you know Indian family that now ran the corner grocery store. And my parents had no experience <laughs> running a grocery store, slicing deli meat, selling cigarettes. You know, it was just not something they had ever done. But it put food on the table. And, and really, one of, that was probably one of the first times that I saw my parents, you know, be accepted into the community. They couldn't pronounce their first names. They called my parents Sam and Sue, but they really embraced us. I mean, we never had to worry about, um, you know, keeping a gun in the store. I, my brother and I delivered groceries to the neighbors. 
who would, you know, sometimes give us a quarter. And it was like such a big deal to me <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's like you're the, the value of hard work. I mean, it sounds very cliche, but, but that's where I learned it. And I learned also sort of the, the need and the obligation that you have to give back to that community. So we didn't have a whole lot during those years, but I saw my parents help out neighbors, help out other families wherever they could and however they could. And so that was something that I just learned by example, you know, and that sort of translated to what do you want to do with your life? You're going through school. And I was like, well, I just want to help people. I don't know what that looks like. I tried, you know, I tried medical school because, you know, in, in, in the Indian community, it's very important, your education and, and sort of succeeding. And, and I tried medical school, but couldn't get through organic chemistry. So that was my, my Achilles heel there. <laughs> and, I love that. And so I, I was like, I looked at the law and I looked at the law because I had majored in English literature, mainly because I had a great English teacher in high school. And, and so I was, you know, at some point in my life, I was like, I'm going to be a short story writer in Ireland, which is just a very, very strange, very specific thing to want to be when you're, when you're growing up. But somehow that led to me going to law school. I, I'm not even sure how all of it happened, but that the convoluted route was me ending up in law school and ending up in law school in DC because I wanted to get into policy uh, more than the practice of law. And I was able to intern at Amnesty International, at Human Rights Watch, at the Government Accountability Project, and, and did a whole lot of clinical legal work. It was 700 hours or so. I went to a very uh, progressive, social justice-oriented law school. And, you know, so I learned that you could, you could, you know, be a lawyer. It doesn't have to be about billable hours. It doesn't have to be about making partner. You could be a lawyer and help the community. And that, to me, seemed a perfect fit. There was a clinic in my law school, and that's really how I got into immigration law to begin with, is because I saw this very tangible impact that you could have on a person's life, um, beneficial impact that you could have on a person's life, helping them you know, get essentially to where I was, a, a naturalized citizen. And so you know, that's, that's where it all came from. I mean, I, I can just uh, attribute it all to the pathway that my, my parents um, laid laid for me because they they really taught me from an early age that that you should give back if you've got something and you're doing okay you should help the community however you can it doesn't have to be in a major way and so that's that's kind of what happened and I think throughout my work in immigration law I saw you know basically how how much policy impacted immigration law so you know, it, it changes. It changes with administrations. It changes with the stroke of a pen. It's different from other areas of law because it is so movable. It's so changeable. And that's, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on who has the pen in hand. And it's, it's something that's very frustrating if it's somebody that's trying to, you know, limit immigration and it's, you know, good and hopeful and encouraging when they're trying to expand it. Because, you know, as a practitioner, you can see the beneficial impact that immigrants have on our country. And so the frustrating part is that everybody doesn't see that. So I, I think that, you know, like a lot of folks, I saw what was going on with the Trump administration. And, and a year in, I guess I'd had enough. <laughs> and so I looked around and said, what can I do? Because I can help people case by case. 
or I can try to do something on a broader policy level. And that's where I decided to enter into public public office, viewing it really, and I still do as a public service. Yeah, let's talk about that decision. I do have to mention, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. It's so powerful. It's so inspirational. And I I have to share that I I interviewed another New Deal leader who also grew up in their parents' grocery store. There's something about, you know, seeing the community from that vantage point and being such a part of the community that must must inspire some public service as well. So I think that's just just an interesting connection. But um, let's talk about your decision to run for office. You mentioned that, you know, Trump being in office, you ran in 2018. Uh, Obviously, like you said, you've been really involved in the community in other ways and making an impact and uh, making a difference. So, and you said that when you went to DC, you really want, thought you wanted to be in policy. So what was it that kind of pushed the button to decide to go from somebody who was going to work more behind the scenes to, uh, to running for yourself? So I saw that Kentucky, right? So I think that the Trump administration had this impact on states where they reacted one way or the other. California reacted one way. New York reacted one way. Kentucky reacted in a different way. Um, They were very supportive of Trump, supportive of Trump's policies. And so you saw this uptick in the immigration rhetoric. You saw this uptick in folks feeling much more comfortable espousing their racist views and, and things like that. It was just not going in a great direction. And so I looked around at my representative, my state representative. I, I live in a, in a district that's represented, by the way, congressionally by uh, John Yarmouth, who is our favorite congressman. So I was not going to run against him. <laughs> um, and he has been a champion of immigration, immigration policies. So we are very, very lucky to have him in Louisville. But, you know, he's kind of kind of like Louisville's a blue dot. I mean, he's it. And then you have, you know, the antithesis in in McConnell and Rand Paul and, you know, everyone else in our congressional delegation. I think that I, I, I was somehow drawn to the state level. I didn't want to just focus on Louisville because Louisville is a unique place in Kentucky. And I, I really wanted to be able to impact policy on a statewide level. And so in a beneficial way. And I saw that people were voting against their self-interest. They were voting for policies that were ultimately harming them economically, harming them, you know, on an individual and a family level, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, access to safe food and clean water, transportation so they can get to work, childcare. Kentucky ranks last in, you know, any list that you can find in terms of how much we invest in our people and and the impacts are seen in our data. We have unhealthy people, we have sick people, we have a lot of poverty, um, and we have a lot of desperation because there is no pathway out. So you have industries that are gone, that are dying, like the coal industry. There has been no investment made in retraining those communities, for instance, in renewable energies. There is no investment in infrastructure and, and these are important things to think about. And I, I thought my, my being there um, with my experience and my perspective on a state level and really focusing on progressive policies that would, that would be able to help Kentucky in the years to come, even after I was gone, I think that's really what spurred me into running for, for office on a state level. And, you know, at that time, the representative that was, you know, in my district had been there for about 20, 21 years. 
and and wasn't very engaged, was not engaged in the district, was not talking about these issues, did not have any plans to address anything that's in our changing economy, in our changing district, in our commonwealth. And so I, I think I, I saw that that was a need that needed to be addressed. Um, and that's, that's why I ran for state representative of my district, District 40. And it's, you know, it's been, it's been a learning experience. It's been very, very interesting um, being a legislator in Frankfurt, being the only immigrant, the only Indian. It's, uh, you know, I don't think folks know quite what to do with me. They don't know <laughs> where, which, you know, where to place me. And, and that's just been an interesting experience. But, but I think it's valuable to have somebody there espousing some progressive policies as rational, as not something that's radical pie in the sky. And it's been really helpful being a part of the New Deal and drawing on all of the best practices and amazing stuff that I see happening in other states. And I've definitely utilized that in introducing legislation and just having conversations trying to move the needle forward here in Kentucky. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I do want to stay on that thought. You read my mind about my next question. You know, you know, you really are a trailblazer in so many ways, and you, you mentioned it, but it's worth underscoring. You know, you, I think you were the first Indian American to even run for public office at the state level in Kentucky, if I if that's correct, and then only the second woman of color in the Kentucky legislature. So I've been so moved, you know, early this year with watching Kamala Harris get sworn in and how many people that's touched just to see that kind of representation. So, you know, can you just speak a little bit more about, you know, that experience that you alluded to and and being a candidate and then and then a a representative, you know, that didn't look like, you know, maybe everybody people were used to seeing there and and how how has that been for you? It's been it's really been amazing. I, I think that you know, and I see that Kamala Harris, you know, even when she was, um, when they were running, that she she was the VP pick. That was exciting. I think that when they won, it was just such a historic moment for South Asians. I mean, just the levels of excitement, you you just, you couldn't believe it. And, and you know, you look at the makeup of, of the cabinets and the folks that they have picked and appointed, and there's a lot of immigrants. There's a lot of immigrants, a lot of South Asians, a lot of people that care about the same issues, I guess, that we do. And I think that, you know, that hope and that optimism that we talked about in the beginning, that has a lot to do with it. It's not just lip service. It's not just, you know, the Biden-Harris administration saying, vote for me and we'll do this. And then they don't. You know, there's actual structural changes that are happening um, in our government that where you see people that are actually qualified for positions you know, being appointed to those positions. I mean, that doesn't sound very <laughs> radical, but after the last four years, it's refreshing. And it's it's a sign that I think we're getting back to normal. And the reaction, you know, certainly in the immigrant community and the Indian community specifically has been just phenomenal. I was a member of the Emerge Kentucky group uh, back in 2012. And that's a, that's a nationwide group that the helps train democratic women um, to run for office. And, you know, in this class, there were two South Asian um, candidates and I've seen so many immigrants, you know, come up to me and say, Hey, I'm interested in running for Metro council, folks from the Somali community, from the Nepali community, from the Indian community. And it's, it's just, it's just amazing. And they're mainly younger people, which is equally as exciting, if not more so that these young people are so engaged that they're already planning, not like not like me with my sort of circuitous route to public office, like planning ahead 
so that they know, you know, in the next five years, they, they're going to run for this office. And it's, it's just astounding to see the level of determination, really, and engagement that just my, either my race and then uh, Kamala Harris's um, election has, has created in Kentucky. And I'm sure it's happening nationwide. Absolutely. It is just so, it feels like there's a sea change going on of types of people who are being elected that are just more representative. And I think it's just, it's going to really change the trajectory of this country. So um, it's just super exciting. I could talk to you forever, frankly, but I know our time is wrapping up, so I should. Uh, but I'd love to finish with just a question that I like to ask people. I, um, I'm i always curious when we think about leadership and service, and I'm just so you know honored to work with so many of you who, who serve in public life. If there's a book or two that, that you would recommend that has meant something to you in terms of thinking about, about leadership. So I don't, I don't really read leadership books. I don't know if other leaders do. Maybe I should get into it. But I, I have started. <laughs> I have started, you know, and it was not necessarily a resolution, but daily I will either read a TED article or watch a TED talk on something. It doesn't matter what the topic is. And, and TED has a ton of videos and they're brief. Some of them, some of them are longer and more in depth. And, and it's just, it's inspiring to me, to be perfectly honest, because what I think leaders need to do on a constant basis is learn. I think they need to constantly be observing, learning, really absorbing experiences and ideas so that they can then translate that into policies or initiatives. So I, that's what I've been looking at is, is, is really just TED Talks, one TED Talk a day. <laughs> and, I love that. Um, and so that's that's an easy thing. I mean, it's it's much easier than reading a book. But I will say that on my bedside is a book, I think is called Human Behavior by uh, Robert Sapolsky. He is a behavioral scientist. And so he and he has also a series of videos. And it's very interesting. It's interesting from an evolutionary standpoint to just understand why we do the things we do. Right. Because we think that we are making progress here. And it's interesting to know that we're really just animated by by a lot of evolutionary impulses and biological impulses. And what can we do? What can we do with the knowledge of that? So I think that's that's also very interesting. And coupled with these TED Talks has been something that has helped me at least try to put some perspective in the legislation that I introduce and the conversations I have about policies, especially with people that, that we, you know, that I may not agree with. So not necessarily a book uh, or leadership book, but these two things have been helping me uh, try to kind of keep focused on why I'm doing what I do. I love it. It's fantastic. Thank you for that advice. Well, Nina Kalkarni, really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>